Thank you for listening to the Starburns Audio Podcast Network. We have so many great comedy shows to add to your playlist. Just last week on Starburns Audio, on New Player Has Joined, Keith and Jesse talked to Dr. Christopher Hale about getting involved with the Sister District Project. They also discuss fascism and gaming and Echo the Dolphin. On The Boogie Monster, Dave Stone and Kyle Kinane talk about exploration and treasure hunting, the protests, and redefining policing. On Office Hours Live, Tim Heidecker, DJ Doug Pound, and Vic Berger are joined by Thundercat and Z from Black Socialists in America. Listen to this episode to find out how you can help Office Hours raise funds for the Black Lives Matter Global Fund. Search Starburns Audio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast platform for a full list of our shows. Featuring hosts like Monet Exchange, Bob the Drag Queen, and Amanda Seals. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Starburns Audio. Enjoy the show. And remember, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep laughing. Hello, humans. It's me again. Um, welcome to episode sixty-six of my podcast, Steve A. G. Uh. Uh, you're all already aware of that though. Um, my guest this week is my good friend and colleague. Is that, can I say colleague? We both work in the same business. Uh, who's walking by my window outside? I live in the worst goddamn fucking building ever. <laughs> okay, just breathe. Just concentrate on your breath. Don't let those dickheads bother you. You meditate. You meditate, Steve. That shouldn't bother you. Those are fellow human beings. You're all connected. We are all connected. I'm made out of the same stuff they're made out of. I come from the same place. I will end up in the same place. <sighs> okay, just let it go. They better shut the fuck up, though, I swear to God. <laughs> so, yeah, Lynn, colleague. Yeah, we both work in the entertainment <laughs> industry. I think she works a little more probably a little more professional. Um, I met Lynn probably three or four years ago on the set of New Girl. She directed me on my second episode, my very second episode uh, of New Girl. I think it was season two. And I think it was, I think the title of the episode is First Date. And uh, so if you go on if it's on Netflix, it might be on Netflix. If you go on Netflix, you can find that episode. Um, or you can probably buy the season on Amazon. What? Are we going there already? We're going to the Amazon plug? 
yeah, we're going to try and shorten these intros now that I'm, I'm cranking them out. Um, you can go, uh, probably find a lot of Lynn's work on Amazon. Uh, she directed a movie called your sister, sister laggies, hump day, touchy feely. Um, she's directed a ton of TV. She's directed a few episodes of Marin. Few episodes, casual, shameless, fresh off the boat, master of an Mindy project. She works a lot, and you know why? Because she's talented and also uh, pleasant to work with. And I think that I think that factors into a lot of people's careers. Maybe not as many as it should, but uh, Lynn's one of the good ones. And uh, look, guys. And girls, if you ever get a chance to work with her, I, uh, uh, I would say don't pass. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can check out all those titles. If you can find them on Amazon, uh, click the little link on the Feral Audio homepage or on my uh, podcast page at Feral Audio. There's a little button that says go to Amazon. Go there, buy, buy, just buy, just feed into, into the machine, feed into the capitalist machine. <laughs> Why am I dragging these out? Let's just get into the podcast. Um, yeah, Lynn and I talked for over an hour and a half. That's how comfortable I am around her. She's a good, uh, good talker. <laughs> and I obviously am not good talker. Maybe. Oh boy. I just got an email. I'm, um, yeah, I'm just going to get into it. I'm a bad talker, but, uh, I don't think I am in this. This is a great episode. I loved it. Lynn is the best. Thank you, Lynn. If you're listening to this for doing the podcast, thank you for listening once again, I hope you enjoy it, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. How's this? Terrible. <laughs> Wait, talk again? Hello, hello, hello. If I get really enthusiastic, hello. That's good. Um, do this. We're already recording, Lynn. Okay, Steve. Thank you for warning me. <laughs> I'll, so, I'll mind my P's and Q's so now. Mind the racial slurs. And <laughs> Maybe just just restrain myself a little tiny bit. Your hat matches that blanket. It does. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody, to my hat podcast. Um, let me make double sure we're recording. I've had some bad experiences in the past. We are. Yeah. Okay. Um, How's it going? I'm sitting here with director, <laughs> actor, writer, Lynn Shelton. Um, no, I, uh, oh, you know, I, we were, when I first got here, I was talking about your parking problems in this neighborhood. I had to park over on Alvarado. And it's Sunday, and for anyone listening, this is in the MacArthur Park area, and um, which is not the most affluent neighborhood in Los Angeles. I don't know what you're talking about. 
<clears throat> um, I'm often shocked that you live down here. <laughs> um, but I, I par I had to park like far away because there's no parking. And, um, on Alvarado, there's just all these people set up on the sidewalk selling stuff. It's a market. It's that, it's that way every day, by the way, it's not just a Sunday thing. And it actually gets really hopping at like nine, 10 at night. What? Yeah. Yeah. What's the, it's, what's the thinking behind that? Well, I don't know, Steve, this whole neighborhood is a mystery to me, but, uh, but I love it. I went, I went walking once. I've never, I've never walked around that neighborhood, that, that part of, te- uh, that part of the neighborhood. I well, don't you think shouldn't. I've ever done that at night, especially but, at night. You should, but I've driven, you know, there all the time and it's like, just, just hopping and it's whole families. And so I was really curious about what is it that they're selling, you know, cause there's like laid out on oh, blankets yeah. and stuff. And so I did do it once in the day and a couple times. And, um, and it's fat, it's like a- anything, everything, like some, yeah. it's like shampoo and, oh, and I walked past infant formula and, and like bat baskets with blister packs of, uh, of all kinds of different colored capsules and pills. And I mean, I, I walked past a woman who was selling, um, she had a blanket set out and she was selling batteries mm-hmm. and deodorant. Yes. She had like every kind of battery you could imagine and like 15 different kinds of deodorant. And that's what she on was like selling. On a blanket. On a blanket. Yeah. And then there's also like a lot of food, um, but yep. it's all, most of it is pre-made. There's, it's not like a food cart where people are, you're watching people cook so much. Yeah. It's like pre-made yeah. Burritos or tortillas or something that are, and then they are selling them and just sort of, pa- you see yeah. these p- plastic bags being, yes. but people are just out there doing all of their shopping on the street. It's so fascinating. It's really weird. And I think it's so crowded on the street because I mean, honestly, it's, it's a more impoverished part of town. So I don't think a lot of people have cars. That's right. why everyone is walking. A lot of foot a lot traffic. Of foot traffic. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of living in New York city. This yeah. neighborhood, which is one of the reasons I really like it because it feels so urban. And I, I spend, uh, you know, my, my home base where I own a home, um, and my family lives is in Seattle. And yeah. so it's very interesting. I was down here almost, I've been staying in this same apartment in the same neighborhood for since last December. So almost a year. And <laughs> <laughs> you remember when I was so about to move weird. in and, uh, and I, the, I was here for like a month and a half or something it was a pretty intense, intensive amount of time. And I remember going back to Seattle to my neighborhood and it was, I was just struck by how clean it was oh, and yeah. how white it was and how, uh, green it was. It was just because it, we'd had a really wet winter and a really warm spring and the foliage this year was nuts. It was like, you know, that you could barely get down yeah. the sidewalk for these huge, yeah. just plants just going crazy. And yeah. And I, and it felt really strange. It felt like, Oh, look at all these white people with their dogs and their strollers. And honkies. there's hardly any of them. There's all this empty space in between them, all this negative space. And it just, yeah. and it took me a while to get used to that, you know, that sort of version of reality. And it's, and you know, there are other neighborhoods in Seattle that are a little more urban, <clears throat> And a little more diverse, but it was, uh, yeah, it was sort of an I alarming drove, switch. I drove to Portland last year 
for the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. I go every year, but usually I don't drive. Yeah. Last year I was already in San it's Francisco. I was already in San Francisco doing shows. So I was like, well, I'll just drive the rest of the way to Portland. And it was amazing because it was, I mean, California's just been in a horrible drought. So like everything is just brown. Yeah. All the mountains, the hills, everything's just brown. Yeah. And then just as you get to like extreme (laughs) Northern California, even before you get to like Oregon, it just gets really green. Lush. Yeah. You're like, there's so much water up here. I know. It's amazing. I'm a big bath uh, lover. I love a bath Uh and I... I feel so, I make the shallowest, very rarely do I do it up here. I mean, down here in LA and it'll be very shallow (laughs) because I just feel so guilty and it's so, it feel, and I'm sure I should feel guilty up there too, but it's harder, you know, because it's harder to feel guilty because you're just like, there's buckets coming down outside and, and everything's so green and it just doesn't feel. So by shallow bath, you don't mean you're sitting in a bath going, I wish my car was nicer. I, I, <laughs> a bath of shallowness, this bathing person in shallowness. I was working with yesterday smelled so bad. Uh, <laughs> so I met you for anyone for for anyone listening. I always say that like there's three people. There's a lot of people listening to this. But I met you on New Girl. Indeed. You directed me on my second episode of New Girl. It's funny. I thought you'd been on it longer than that. But no, no, that was my second. That was your second one. And to this day, it was my biggest episode. Really? Yeah. It was was that, the only, that wasn't the one where you, was that the one with the big one where I lured you? I thought there was a, Yeah, I, I thought I, I had one episode before that where it was super fast, just you on the street. There was one episode before that, but uh, Fred Goss directed it and it's where I'm, they mention outside Dave, I think for the first time. And it's about a parking space and, and they have a flashback and I'm sleeping flash. on her car. Okay. And then the one that I directed you in then was you the, one. the one where they, where, uh, <laughs> you come inside Max and Lamorne <laughs> want to break up Zoe and Jake. Oh, right. And so they have a plan to send me <laughs> to break up their date. I don't know how that's going to work, but they're like, you can come into our house and we'll make you a sandwich. And I end up locking myself in their bathroom. Right. And just like luxuriating in a real bathroom. Yeah, it was the biggest episode I've done because it was multiple days of shooting. I remember. Yeah. And then there was a whole. Like oh, a stunt. oh, it was. That's right. It wasn't you coming down the roof. It was Max, Max who tried to get in through the sunroof, through the sunroof and the, the and skylight. And legs. you're shaving his legs. That was a pretty funny episode. I love that show. I had never, you know, I'd never watched the show. I, I think I had this hipster kind of view of like fuck sitcoms (laughs) fuck network tv and then they hired me and I was like well I guess I should watch it and I loved it Mm -hmm. it's really funny and everyone was super nice it's a lot of the same um, uh, crew that worked on the Sarah Silverman program really yeah Erin O'Malley was an executive producer on Sarah Silverman show that's right EP on New Girl and now directing yeah and uh, like Michael, she brought a lot of folks over. Yeah, Michael Whetstone, who was the uh, like oh, production was he on Sarah Silver? Yeah, I love Whetstone. Um, um, yeah, a really gr- amazing group of people, and the and the actors have a great chemistry. It's a great ensemble. They're yeah. very, they're all very funny and very talented, and their individual characters are pretty well drawn. And they've all contributed. The actors have all contributed to those 
you know, to the evolution of each of the characters and the relationships. And they've really, yeah. I mean, and it's hard to, it seems like to me, like it would be hard to have uh, that many show, that many shows in a series. I mean, nowadays you get all of these Netflix and streaming and HBO shows that are like eight, 10, 13 episodes at the most. And that just seems so much more manageable, but to do as many as they've done every year year. and that continue to come up with, Scenarios. I think this is now their last season. Man. I think they're, is it? I think they've just started their final season. Like, they, the end is in some, Right. Like, they know it's going to end. Right. I, I think that's cool with a, a show when you know yeah. where the end is so you can actually write a yeah. final arc in, like, Well, that's episodes. the thing is how do you... Because you can't... You know, the characters can only develop so much or there can yeah. only be so much... Because you have to sort of keep them going yeah. i mean it's obviously you know it's doable i mean people have done it but it, it just seems like such an incredible challenge to me to 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 have that kind of a long-term relationship with characters as you know as a right as a what was your first creator. tv directing gig mad men for real for reals it's crazy i know it's so nuts i still so you to went this from day, doing can't indie films <laughs> tiny like micro budget. Okay. So, you know, the term indie could mean a $10 million, 12 million, even 20. I remember the year that milk won at the independent spirit awards and it, it was, was like $20 a $20 million, million you know, like How really that? that's, indie. is it because there's not a studio involved? Exactly. So officially it's indie, but I'm talking, you know, we are talking pennies. We are talking, yeah, pick I've up a camera. That are like $80,000 budgets yeah. and everyone's tried 20. Like they have, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's like, you know, usually on a TV show or a movie, everyone has their own trailer, and I mean everyone. Like the director will have a trailer, the actors will have a trailer. There's production trailers, there's hair and makeup trailers, there's a wardrobe trailer. But I've done like some of those. I mean, most of the movies I've done have been so low budget. It's like I did a horror movie where we shot out near. Um, uh, God, what? Uh, not Victorville. Calabasas. Green Valley. No, no. Out uh, off the 14 freeway out I towards, have no idea. you know, past Santa Clarita. I mean, in the middle of the desert, basically. Mm-hmm. And they had one RV mm-hmm. for everyone. The <laughs> RV was the production trailer. It the was green room. Where the, the actors dressing room. would hang out. It was the dressing room, hair and makeup. It was the only bathroom. The only bath we were in the desert, so there was no bathrooms. Mm-hmm. It was so. I didn't low know budget. what a trailer was. Um, I've made six movies, and my first five were the sixth was was the first time I've ever had trailers. Are you uh, are you mumblecore director? Don't even. What is mumblecore? Mumblecore is a word that somebody <laughs> came up with. I don't know who. I don't know if it was a journalist or I don't even remember now. Supposedly like a sound mixer on one of somebody's films um, <laughs> said the word and it was picked up by some journalist and as a way to kind of categorize or bunch together these small right. films that were being made at the time. And, but like the original definition of mumblecore was because most of the mumblecore quote unquote mumblecore directors were young white men and they were like in their early twenties, like they were pretty DuPont's young brothers. and they were making 
Yeah. And they were, and it, although they were a little bit older, they were probably in their late twenties by then, but they were making films kind of about their own generation, you know, and, right. and they tended to be sort of, and it was just like a lot of conversations and they just felt very real and very naturalistic. Right. But, um, but if you looked at all of the people who had been categorized in, in lumped in, they were each were making very distinctly different films. Like my, my, I always said, first of all, I don't even know why I'm, you know, if the, I didn't fit their original definition cause I was older than everybody and I was a woman right. and I wasn't making films really about that group, you know, about young twenties, I was doing something slightly different. So it was, it was, um, but because my films were mostly improvised, they, they had a, you know, some, there were certain aspects that felt right. similar. So my second film, My Frost Brilliance and my third film, Hump Day were kind of lumped in. And I was friends with Joe Swanberg and friends with Aaron Katz and friends with the Duplass brothers and, 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 and Mark was in my third film. So it just kind of, I don't know, it seemed to fit into that category, but to me, it felt like saying that, oh, films that are really micro budget and that some of them use handheld cameras and digital video is they're all the same. They're they're like, you know, it's like saying all, you know, 20 million dollar movies shot on 35 millimeter film, which was still happening right. at the time, are all the same somehow. You know what I mean? Like there's so many if you look at the individual directors, they were all doing different things. You know, Andrew Bajowski always shot on film and Barry Jenkins film felt very naturalistic and improvised, but it was completely scripted medicine for melancholy and everybody had their own thing, you know, and some people used like Tantel did, some people didn't, they would use tripods. And so anyway, it was, it was, but as just one pointed out at the time, it was very handy to be uh, to have a spot, it was a nice handy way to have a spotlight shown upon these tiny little movies that individually might not have gotten much attention, right. you know, so to be kind of grouped together, at least it was a way to get press, you know, and we all were, I mean, the, the, the thing that was true was that we were, there were a lot of friendships in that group of people sure. and there was a lot of cheerleading and collaboration, right. you know, including directors like David Lowry, who just directed this big studio movie, Pete's Dragon. Right. Um, and, you know, he edited people's films and shot people's films and, you know, wrote scripts and, did, you know, and so there were there and then was directing his own as well. But there was a lot of people acting each other's movies and producing each other's movies and kind of, you know, jumping in and helping crew, which is which was wonderful. I mean, I met Joe. um on the festival circuit with my very first film, he was on the circuit with the what second was your film. First film. It was called We Go Way Back, and it won Slam Dance in 2006, and then it went on a festival tour of, like we met at the Maryland Film Festival, um, and I met my future editor Nat Sanders on my second tour circuit with my second feature film, My Fearless Brilliance, Independent Film Festival of Boston, and you know, and we collaborated several times after that. So, um, yeah, it, it, there really was this, this great sense of camaraderie, you know, and, and mutual support, which, and, and all of us were, and none of us were waiting for permission to make movies. We were right. picking up a camera and getting friends together and, and making it work. You That's know? the other thing. How do you, I mean, your first movies were all done in Seattle, right? 
Yeah, all all six of my movies have been made in Washington State, and so how at do least you wrangle a, a crew? Well, there's crew up there. There's amazing crew up there. I've used the same crew, some different iterations of basically the same group of people from the from the get go. I mean, there's a really lovely film industry up there. It's really, um, uh, you know, a passionate, talented pool of people who are are, uh, you know, I mean the the problem with a lot of regional filmmaking is, is there enough work to keep people there? And we're bleeding a little, we're hemorrhaging a little bit, but luckily, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people, for instance, who are commuting to Portland or commuting to Spokane, Washington, which is in Eastern Washington. Portland is in Oregon. It is a state near Washington, but it is Portland Portland and Seattle are not the same city. (laughs) It's so funny how all, most of my LA friends, refer to me going back to Portland and I'm like, I don't live in Portland. Portland's in right. a different state. It's about four or five hours away from Seattle. Yeah, you're not a grunge musician. <laughs> well, grunge did that as a Seattle thing. But anyway, no, they, yeah, no, they're exactly the same thing. What am I saying? They're, I'm just going to conflate them. They're this posi, sepo, <laughs> I'll just call them. No. Anyway, um, but, but there's a, Oregon has a slightly healthier fund for their, you know, their incentive program, their film incentive program. Really? Has it always been that way? Mm, well, we didn't get ours. Washington state didn't even get, we've been lobbying and lobbying and lobbying and finally got a film incentive program like, oh gosh, I don't know what, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. And, uh, but and it's beautifully designed. It's real. It's not like some of the ones that sort of bleed the state dry because they just give fifty percent back on every you know yeah. penny spent. Yeah. We we do this like careful. No money goes back unless there's uh, gets rebated to the production unless until after the shooting is all done. The money's all been spent. There's been a very thorough audit. Right. All of the people um, who are hired on the film have to be. Um, given pension health benefits and paid wow. union wages, even if it's not a union show, but I think it has to be a union show. Um, and it's only, they only get money back on services, uh, in-state services. You know, if it's a, a an in-state company that's providing the catering or local hires, people who actually live in right. Washington state who are being hired as grips and electrics and so on. So um, it really, really benefits the state, like very, very, you know, clearly, but there's only a tiny amount of money in the fund that gets now that there's a TV show in Eastern Washington that like takes at least half of it right off the bat. And so there's very little money left for, there used to be a few, you know, there would be a few sort of small to medium sized film productions that could be supported now, but now it's really, there's really like room for one, you know, it's not, there's not a lot. I just did a movie, an independent movie in Kansas city. Mm Mm-hmm. And they have a small incentive program there as well. And there was another movie. In fact, it was my friend Dave Dasmalchin, who's who did a movie called Animals like a couple years ago. And uh, he's an Ant-Man and he's like an awesome actor. And like uh, he wrote these great movies. And so they were shooting at the same time as us. Mm hmm. In Kansas City. And somehow I think they got most of the incentive money. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure. I don't know of- how you know, the city or state decides who gets. Yeah. I don't know either. I know it's a that first come first serve maybe. Yeah. But I didn't, I know the TV show could easily use up all of the, it's called Z nation. It's on the sci-fi channel and, and they could easily, I know they want all of the incentive money, but she always, I think that they try to Washington film works, tries to 
reserve some for other, you know, other projects. But so anyway, it's, it's been hard for folks to stay, you know, Portland has, or wash, I'm sorry, Oregon state has about, I think they have about three times the amount of money in their fund enough to support a couple TV shows, two or three TV shows. And as well as a few film productions, you know, you can't, neither state could afford uh, to create incentive um, money for like, you know, Spider-Man six or whatever. Like there's no way you could do a gigantic movie, but well, Atlanta, you know, Atlanta's doing all the Marvel movies. Yeah. And, but New York has a huge, ridiculously huge fund. Now California's is built is, uh, is really built back up again. And, um, and yes, Atlanta is a huge one. I think they still, there's still a lot going down on down in Louisiana. So there, there are certain Hawaii is another one, but, um, does California have to have an incentive fund? Just oh yeah, be- that's why that's why all the productions left the state, and there was a lot of you know a lot of weeping over that. And and lately, it's they've come back because there's been there's more money now been allocated. Um, when did all that start? Like it seemed I like know. I, I mean that, it was always know. Hollywood or New York. That's where you shot everything. Exactly. And Although for a long this- time, I lived in New York in the, in the 90s and there was nothing going on. Really? There was one TV show. Law and Order was it. And I remember all my actor friends because I was an actor at the time and they, it was like everybody had their one stint on, you know, Law and Order. But it was Law literally the only thing I didn't know. I, I never, I, I, I tried to make a living <laughs> in New York as an actor for about two seconds and then just did a bunch of downtown performance art and, and, uh, and then went to grad school. Performance photography. art? Photography. Well, it was, you know, it was, it was performance spaces that were oh, doing yeah. like very fringy, you know, yeah. off, 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 <laughs> Broadway. But I remember I, like the Blue Man Group was just recently on the founding, couple founding members were on like, wait, wait, don't tell me or something. And I remember, I knew those guys cause they, I was there yeah. in New York when they were wandering around just being silent and blue. Yeah. And then like they'd show, they'd perform, and blue. they'd perform. That should be their autobiography <laughs> when a book finally comes out. Silent, silent and, blue. and blue. And they would perform, you know, in these basements at places like Nada and, you know, and, and the Dixon place. And I lived places in New like York that. in 90, I want to say 92 or 93. It was mm-hmm. whenever... I know when it was because it was when Letterman had his final show at NBC, Uh which I think was 92 or 93. That sounds about right. And Blue Man Group was totally new back then. Mm -hmm. And they had a show in this little theater. Fuck, I wish I could remember the name of the theater. It was down near, it was near the Flatiron building. That far up? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know there was because most of the places were down like below. There's a Houston. small theater, and it was so huh. cool. Yeah, and my girlfriend and I went, and it blew my mind. I had yeah. never seen anything like it. Yeah, you know, I'd gone to a ton of Broadway plays and stuff, and seen a ton of bands. Yeah, but I went to this, and it was this. It was weird pretty cool music show plus they, like performance art. Exactly. When they had the whole at the end of the show it was just like strobe lights going off and they had these big like th- things of like almost like toilet paper on uh, do like you remember that? Streamers. They had these big spools of like toilet <laughs> paper and they would just start pulling it out into the audience <laughs> and then the whole audience would just be covered in like three feet of toilet paper and everyone's throwing it around and there's strobe lights. And it was like, I don't remember that one. I remember seeing them. They were just one act and a bunch of different, you know, it was like a bunch of people performing that night. Yeah. 
and along with um, this wonderful, do you know Toby Huss? Have we talked about him? Yeah, I do know Toby, yeah. Yeah, and he was doing his um, version of, uh, he still does it to this day, but I remember just like being a, completely blown away by his Frank Sinatra yeah, yeah. dude, inspired yeah. dude. Who, and, you know, he was uh, a younger man at the time and he really was like a young uh, I've seen it. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, like the worst side of Frank. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was just and spot on. And he would do these and he would sing as him. And he was just like, holy fucking hell. Yeah. He looked like him. He sounded like him. It was crazy. Anyway, I remember seeing Toby perform that night. And and then Blue Man Group did this like one number you know or sort of and you're just like whoa Whoa. who are these guys and uh, you know and then like a juggling act or something i mean it was just like one of those crazy you know show fred armison used to be in blue man group no yeah he was one he wasn't one of the blue guys he he was in the band i think he was one of the oh okay yeah yeah. drums in the band Mm. i could see that i wonder if he was there that night probably not it was probably later because i don't remember there being a live Um, band but yeah i was it was it was very impressive when they went on to develop the whole show. And then once they started franchising and touring around, I was just like, Oh my God. Cause I just remember these young, poor, you know, poor artists like the rest of us. And I was just so impressed with their entrepreneurial spirit, you know, where, where they took it. It was pretty impressive and so mainstream because it started out so fringy and edgy and like weird. I don't know if they still do it, but they were in Vegas for a long time. Oh no, I think they still, I think they're still going strong. Yeah. It's still an incredibly, I mean, my kid just saw them for the first time this last year, you know, probably when they came through Seattle or something. So crazy, but yeah. Um, yeah. I so love New York. Oh, I, man. I loved living there. I just couldn't afford it. Yeah. I lived there for a long time. I meant to be there for like three to f- four years. And did you go to school there? I did. I went there to do, uh, I went there to be, uh, an actor in the theater. I wasn't interested really in anything, but the theater, I had this very, very uh, romantic view about what I was going to do. And then the theaters that I was really interested in working in, like um, New York Theater Workshop was sort of my dream. I remember seeing my friend Garrett Dillahunt in a Carol Churchill, new Carol Churchill play at the time, new called Mad Forest. And it was just... Who? Garrett? You know Garrett too? Uh, uh, We're friends on on Twitter. I've never met him. I think he's such a great actor. Oh my God. He's amazing. And he's in a lot of stuff that you would just be like... Yeah. Drama and well, like that's the comedy. thing. He can do anything. Yeah. He can be, he's so funny and raising hope and, yeah. And, uh, and so brilliant as a dramatic actor. It, the, you know, I love the legend, the legendary, tr- I mean, it's not legend. It's true that David Milch cast him as two completely different characters in Deadwood. You knew this, right? I've never seen an episode of Deadwood. Well, you're crazy, man. I know. It's like brilliant. I, I gotta watch it. so brilliant. And he plays two completely different both, you know, characters equally brilliantly, just un- unbelievable. Yeah, no, he's he's an incredible actor. But um, yeah, he started in the theater. We we both went to the University of Washington and got BAs from the School of Drama. And uh, we auditioned to get into the NYU grad program, acting program together. And I got waitlisted and he got in. And, uh, and then he, I saw him in this show and I remember just like, that's what, that is it. That is what I want to do. And then I found out how much he was making a week. (laughs) I was like, okay, I don't understand something. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) This, so your goal is to make this much money. And you know, I'm saying to myself per week and how will you, 
you know, this is like eight you, hour, uh, hours of rehearsing a day for several weeks. Eat? How do you pay and rent? And then it was, how do you pay rent? How do you, I don't get it. Like you, do you have to be independently wealthy? I guess you have to, I couldn't figure it out because it's not either. like you have time for another job if you're work, actually working as anyway. And so it, that took some of the shine off and I just didn't have the disposition. I wasn't, I wasn't able to really take the rejection, you know, my boyfriend at the time who became my husband was going out for commercial auditions and he was going to five or six auditions a day, every single day. <laughs> and every couple of weeks he'd get a gig. Yeah. And I realized, Oh, it's also a, it's a, it's a game it's numbers of numbers. Game, yeah. And he just was so, he didn't take it personally. He was like water off a duck's back. It just sort of like, you know, it's not a problem for him. And I just took everything so to heart so anyway, I, I did end up going, I took a bunch of classes at the International Center of Photography because I'd always been interested in photography as well. And then I ended up, once I had a sort of body of work to submit to grad school, yeah. I uh, I applied to go to the School of Visual Arts graduate program and, um, and that was just a life changer. It was, it was great. It was so great. And I wanted to be, I always wanted to be an artist, right? So I was very serious about it since I was very small. <laughs> I was writing poems early on and yeah. painting and, yeah. and I want, I had my brother, my, my dad's two brothers, my two uncles, one was a poet and one was a sculptor. Wow. And I was like, those are my people. Like I want to be like them. They yeah. were my idols. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, Anyway, by the time, so photography, it was art school, going to the School of Visual Arts, the program was really about creating serious artists, you know, that was, you know, yeah. helping you figure out your, your modality. And I got really, I took cultural theory and feminist theory classes for the first time, because I'd sort of skipped all that in, in, um, in undergraduate and I really enjoyed them, but I got really in my head, like I was doing very kind of off like from the hip, um, if anybody knows photography, like Vivian Meyer style, who uh -huh. I didn't, didn't know her work at the time, but that when I saw it, it was like, oh, that was the kind of work I was doing or Robert Frank or this kind of like black and white printing, you know, um, darkroom photography, but very like street photography. Yeah. And that was what I was doing before I got into grad school. And as soon as I got into grad school, I started to really get in my head about, oh, what does my work mean? And I just, I got really bound up and kind of blocked <laughs> about it. And what's the most meaningful work to do? And I don't know. Such an art school student. Oh God. And having to like describe and explain everything I was doing, like yeah, kind of screwed me way. up. Like yeah. it just freaked me out. So, um, to kind of get out of my head and just have fun. I took this video workshop that I thought, well, I'm not, that's not my medium. So I can just play and right. just allow myself to kind of, you know, free myself up a little bit. You know, stakes. And as soon as I started, I made this, my first video ever was this like eight minute, <laughs> it was called white. And it was about, it was an experimental video or experimental film slash video art. I don't know what it was about, um, be about the gestalt of the bride because I had just gotten married and I felt very conflicted <laughs> about it. And cause I was yeah. like, it was all about being a feminine, a good feminist. And I was just like, what am I doing being this bride? So I bought all these bridal <sighs> magazines and I like 
because there was all this fed, you know, they're, and they're so creepy and they're yeah. very, there's all this fetishization of the bride. Right. And, yeah. and I was noticing all these themes that would come up again and again and which part body parts and how they were being feminine, you know, yeah. fetishized. And so I was sort of zeroing in on those and I had this crazy music in the background and then I kind of cut it together with, I made my husband get dressed up. I dressed him up in this, um, paper sort of <laughs> cut like a facsimile of a wedding dress yeah. um and had him dance around on the roof of the building i don't i don't oh even know what God, it that is amazing i basically my made, girlfriend gave in art school did this, would do the same thing to me yeah and i just yeah and i was just basically gave myself permission to make bad video art basically yeah. i was just like i'm gonna play i'm gonna have fun it's i'm just gonna dive in and not worry about yeah. not judge myself That's amazing. and i had so much fun doing it yeah and i like re-scanned the footage meaning that i would play i would record it and then i would film the just monitor to, to so we'll get some grit to it, yeah. you know, um, and, uh, and try and create some texture. And then I shot some stuff on super eight and I just, whatever, I just kind of was <laughs> fucking around and I had so much fun That's and I was amazing. like, I never wanted to do anything else. It was like, you have so much control and the time based and the sound design and all of it. And the music, I, I was like, my head was turned and I couldn't go back to photographs after that. So I made, ended up making three films when I was in school including my thesis project, which was about the different levels of consciousness and, uh, which was called forgetting we are water. Anyway, <laughs> very commercial work. Um, some of my most school. accessible <laughs> film school is amazing. And I came out and my marketable skill was editing was digital editing. Cause that was pretty new at the time. Yeah. And I ended up both part-time teaching it and along with after effects, like motion graphics and oh, stuff. Shit. Yeah. And then I also taught and I would tutor people just one-on-one, -on -one, but I would also, or I get hired by a company to come in and teach like a group of people. And, yeah. and, uh, and I taught at the school of visual arts in different departments. And then I also was freelance editing. So I did that for a long time. I would keep make, I build up enough money to go and rent some studio space somewhere and I would edit together and I had my own little camera, you know, and I would make my own experimental films. Right. And then I would, do you um, still have all edit. these films? <clears throat> yeah, but they're all on like, you know, VHS. So I have oh, to get them transfer transferred them and I know. upload them to like, yeah, I have Vimeo a little Vimeo or channel or something. Yeah. I haven't watched most of them in a really long time, but so that was all in New York. And then, um, moving back to Seattle, um, are you from Seattle? Yeah. I grew up there. Yeah. And I spent a year, my freshman year of college was at Oberlin, but I was really pretty miserable overall. So I came back to finish up at the university of Washington and, uh, loved it there. I loved it. I was really, um, I felt like I had a family, a, a smaller I was in did a you feel like you were going to go back to Seattle and stay there and make films or were you, did you have a plan to maybe go to LA or something? This is a really, no, no, I never wanted to be in the industry. I was an artist, oh. dude. I was like a single, I was making the films I was making were all, I did everything myself because I was my, my, you know, I didn't want to ask anybody for help, but I also was a control freak. I didn't want to give up any, yeah. any control over anything. And, um, and then I also, I don't know. It was interesting. I didn't No, I never saw myself being as par a part of the industry. It wasn't like commercial work. It wasn't like making, and I never thought I'd make money. I was applying for grants and it was just all about being an artist. I was like Stan Brackage or Maya Darren or something, or that's how I fancied myself. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Just being in the art world or slash sort of experimental So you didn't want to stay world. in New York to 
I hate, I just was, it was, it was like when I first moved to New York, I was in my vigorous twenties and it kind of fed the fire of my creativity. And then at a certain point it was like the direction changed and it started to just suck me dry. It felt so hard to just leave the house. I had to like gird for battle, you know, and walk out across the like craps game that was going on on my steps by the drug dealers. And it was, you know, and I wasn't near central park and I wasn't near anywhere that I could just get my soul was not being fed. It was just being bled dry. And I just, it was just so hard to live there without money. And, uh, I don't know. And I was also, we were trying to get pregnant at that point and friends of mine, and I actually did get pregnant, but I had a miscarriage and, and friends who were pregnant at the same time, but had their baby, they had no family nearby. And so I would take care of their kid once a week. And it was like, they were in the same size apartment as us. And I used to sort of think, oh, well, the baby's so small, I'll just put it in a basket and kind of shove it under the, <laughs> put it in you know, a drawer. It, won't, it won't need any, yeah, it won't need any, you know, room. And it was like yeah. pacing with this kid who would, who would cry a lot and trying to keep him from getting fussy. All their neighbors hated them sure. in their apartment. You're like pacing the same 10, you know, realist, 10 feet of real estate yeah. on the, it was, it was horrible to have a baby in that kind of those kinds of conditions. And then I remember the, that year was a terrible winter and trying to like get the stroller across the, like the mounds of ice and the slush. And it was just awful. It was like, how can you do this? I know people do it all the time and it's fine, but it, they figure it out, you know, but it just seemed so hard. And so meanwhile, my in-laws and my parents, both sets of them, you know, I had step parents and my parents had divorced and they were both remarried and they basically were all in Seattle free babysitting better quality of life for yeah. the same amount of money basically you know and so sure enough we we went back when I was pregnant with my successful pregnancy I was like eight months pregnant and yeah. I dragged my husband back because he was having a great time in New York you know I kind of made him come back uh, but with the money he'd made as a commercial actor we were able to you know put down a down payment on a nice little Little, little tiny house. But See, that's what I miss about the fit. 90s. Yeah, exactly. Fuck. Right. But you could fit our tenement apartment, you know, two and a half times over in the size of this little, the footprint of this little house. And we had a yard, you know, and we had, it was like, it was so great. I remember just sitting out on the porch and just crying. I was so happy, you know, it's like, oh God, I remember the porch of my last quote unquote house. It was like, you know. <laughs> Oh, oh God. Yeah. I it was want a porch. Hard. I want a porch I and was, some yard. Exactly. Oh yeah. I you highly can't recommend do it, it as an actor anymore. I don't, I really, I'm so, it's so frustrating. I, a friend of mine just worked on a movie with somebody who's been acting since like the eighties or something. He's, and, uh, he said, the guy was telling him, he's like in the eighties, you could guest star on a sitcom right. and make, Isn't that crazy? For what I do on New Girl, which I'm not even a frac, I'm barely a fraction of that now, but like you could make, you could buy a house. You could guest star on a show, buy a house. I know. You said in the nineties, you'd guest star and you'd make 80 or $90,000. He's like, now, you know, it's like two, $2,000. It's It's crazy. It's so crazy. And the residuals are so tiny. If there are residuals now with all these new outlets, there's a whole bunch of places you could award winning shows you can work on 
and you will not see a single red cent. No. Nope. And shoot, not and award, okay, award winning, but also like popular, you know? Yeah. And you won't see a penny from residuals, which is where at least you could make something before. This is the same thing with directing. And I mean, the scales, the pay scales are so vastly different from outlet to outlet, you know, whether you do NBC or basic cable or premium cable or Hulu or Amazon, it's like the range is insane for the same amount of work and the same, you know, I got into acting way too late. It's really weird. (laughs) Yeah. We're, we're, we're too young. The only way to make money is if you are the star of the show. Yeah, or the or in my case or the, the creator. creator or one of the EPs, and you can actually make a deal, a decent deal. But I know the actual people who come in and make the show, it's it's insane, you know. And yet, I will say, I am making more than I would be making if I was working at a gift shop at the airport. I I don't know why it it always hits me at the airport. For some reason, when I'm buying my, you know, <laughs> my little earplugs that will keep my ears from popping or yeah. whatever at the, you know, or my bottle of water. And for some reason, I always have the same thought of, of, I could be, this I could person. be in your shoes. I could be, I could sit behind that counter and have your job. And, and I, I have, always am I, flooded with airport, gratitude. But I have had those and I have jobs. had two way back when. Yeah. But I've, I've just been flooded with gratitude. I can't believe I get to make any money at all at what I do. I make a living doing what I love to do and I'm grateful for it and pinching myself every day. Because as I said to you before, I always knew I wanted to be an artist. I literally for decades, never thought ever for half a second that I would ever make a living at it. Even, even I was, I was, I was making, um, after I started making feature films as a director, writer, director, I didn't think I'd be able to stop teaching. I'd always have to part-time teach. I'd always have to do something on the side because those movies were never going to make enough for me to really. (laughs) And so to start working in TV, that's really when I started to be able to make a living at this, you know, and we moved out of our tiny little starter house and we, which I thought was the house we would all, we'd, you know, live until we died. I didn't think I'd be able to buy a bigger house right. and it's not a mansion, but it's like enough, you know, I now have two bathrooms. I live with a oh teenager and I have two, have bathrooms. two bathrooms. It's insane. <laughs> it's crazy, Steve. Yeah, yeah. And I have a nice backyard, you know, for having a party and, yeah. you know, it's like, a really, it's a really a sweet house. I have a hammock. You do? Oh yeah. I, I want have, a hammock so I have a bad. Freaking, I have one of the few redwood trees in Seattle. I don't know why we have a redwood tree. We have this beautiful redwood tree. And then there's a Douglas fir right enough of a perfect distance for a really great hammock. <sighs> yeah. But yeah, of course you can only use the hammock two months out of the year because most of the time it's pouring rain. rain. But, but yeah. I've always wanted to live in the north west, whether it's well, you should. Seattle or Portland. Seattle's better. Or even, I mean, sometimes I've been like, I would even go to San Francisco. It's a little further north, but I want it, I want the mountainous areas and the trees. San Francisco and, is not further north than Portland and Seattle, just so you no, get your No, chair. no, I know. But I, I uh, <laughs> for what I do there, I, I can't, I can't make that work. Yeah. Well, I remember... Um, so my buddy Matt Ross lives with his family in, I mean, I, I think it's basically Berkeley. Yeah. And 
when he was on Big Love, he used to he used to commute pretty much every week, and it was like a you know the four hour drive or something. He yep. said he could get it down to four hours, um, and he had an apartment down in Venice, and he could make that work. But but that was after he you know he had that gig too. Right. If you're if you're sort of trying to guest you know figure like audition and stuff, it is it is really hard. And I know like crew two who have families or have a have a home somewhere else like uh, sound mixer on on new girl has a place in grass valley he was telling me about and he has got like a farm you know they have right all kinds of animals and stuff and then he'll he'll commute he has a little tiny place he'll stay when he's shooting down here but they got that house because so much work was out of LA anyway. Yeah. And so he'd be on location in some other state. And so it was like, well, why do we, why are we living in LA if most of my work isn't even going to be in LA? Right. And so that's a lot of people that I know work, you know, they have like a, a house in Portland or a house in the country somewhere in yeah. Oregon and then they'll, you know, or some other state or Texas or something. And then they'll, they'll just go away for work. Um, but the problem really is if you're a writer or a director or an actor who needs to be around town for meetings and auditions yeah. and stuff like that, that's really hard because it'll happen like that sometimes. I mean, that's the impression I get. I feel really lucky that I can live elsewhere. Yeah. I that's feel pretty really, awesome. really lucky. Yeah. I really, I treasure it. And it's, and I know I appreciate Seattle more because I spend time down here and I get some sunshine and I get a different, you know, they, they really balance each other out and then vice versa. Like I really enjoy LA these days because I don't have to be there here all the time. It really, it's nice to have that. It's also hard mentally sometimes because you have to shift gears, but I have to sort of do that in my industry, in my, in my business anyway, you kind of have to do that because every asp, depending on what phase you're in, you're either full on yeah. working your butt off long days, you know, just very intense and thinking and making decisions all the time, putting out fires or you're not working at all. And then yeah. it's like, oh my God, what do I do Terrifying. next? Because, you know, at least when you're on set, you're given a call sheet at the beginning of the day and you're like, okay, I'm doing this and now I'm doing this and now yeah. I'm doing this. And my day is like, you know, this is when I'm eating my meal. You know, like, you know the whole day yeah, is structured for you. out for you. And then... I need, I feel so hungry for that. Like, could I just have somebody AD my life, assistant direct my life or produce yeah, my me, life? Just, tell, just send me an email telling me telling what to me do. Telling me what to do next because I, it's really hard for me to organize my days. And I feel incredibly guilty if I'm not working. It's really, I have to remind myself constantly, you know, no, no, this is okay. You right. can relax. Right. You, you need to recharge or you won't be able to, you know when you get back on set, you won't be able to function. So it's a really weird, uh, it's weird anyway that you're, you know, when you're either working or not working, but combined with the geographic, um, element, right. it really feels like I'm living these, all these different lives, you know? So when you're in Seattle and you, you start making movies in Seattle, how do you cast people? Well, my first, like, like Catherine Keener, well, my first job, my, it wasn't a job. It was just a, it was a nonprofit film studio that asked me if basically commissioned me to write and direct my first feature based on the editing work I'd done on narrative features. But I think more on my experimental film work, they thought I would just do something interesting, I guess. 
and it was um, a very, very, very fortunate um, opportunity. It was crazy lucky that I got that opportunity. And I'd been already fantasizing about making, writing and directing a feature film, but I didn't know how to finance it. And I didn't know how to crew it. I didn't know how to work right. with a crew because I'd only worked by myself. Yeah. And I'd edited feature films, but only been on the post side of it. So I felt, I felt confident that I could put a story together, but I didn't know how to actually do the practical end of it. So this film studio basically came in like a dream and said, we'll crew it. We'll find you a DP and an, all that. And we'll fund it. You just have to come up with the script. And so. That's so weird. I just cast the whole thing. Seattle also has this amazing theater, you know, um, scene than they have for decades. And I didn't know that. Yeah. So I auditioned a lot of folks, actors who were from the theater and they basically were all theater actors and the, uh, some of them fresh out of theater school, the lead, um, actress in my film was like 20, five maybe at the time and she was playing a 23 year old and she had basically just gotten out of I think Cornish School of the Arts I think she had gone to get an acting degree um so she was a year or two out of acting school and yeah so everybody was from the theater world and I wrote my first screenplay and uh and I had a a guru friend who was who was uh a mentor. I'd known from New York days in the theater. She was in the Five Lesbian Brothers, Peg Healy, but she had moved to LA to be a screenwriter and she was really good with structure. And so I remember she agreed to read like drafts and help me figure out how to do it. And she was such a, a lifesaver. She was so great um, in that process. And then getting on set with the actors. You know, I had sort of babied them through the process of the auditioning and the callbacks and it had, but it was just me and them basically in a room with a camera, you know, maybe one other person. And so it had been a very warm and fuzzy and sort of intimate experience. And I knew that all my actors were capable of, you know, naturalism because of that. But once we were on set, it was like, oh my God, this really is such, um, it was like everything about the 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 traditional way you make a movie is almost designed to throw up a roadblock yeah in front of the people who are doing the most important work which right. is the acting right. because no matter how beautiful the lighting is no matter how amazing the production design and the costume design and, the, and you know and the camera work is if you don't have good acting and writing you are fucked mm-hmm. you just are mm mm-hmm. And so you have to shoot all your scenes out of order. You have to make them shoot many multiple takes of the same thing (laughs) again and again and again and make it seem fresh and yet, you know, consistent. You have to like technically you have to be here. You have to be here every time. Everything is so technical. And so it's very different. It's very counter to way to the way, um, acting in a play is because you get to play out the arc of a whole story from beginning to, to end. And you have this, all this rehearsal time, and then you sort of live it every night. And it's a very different or very organic process, you know, comparatively. I mean, you have to do it night after, if you're doing for months, that's one thing that's hard in and of itself, but it's, it's just, it's really specific. It's like apples and oranges doing theater versus Uh film. 
So I found that with a th- with 30 people standing around with their arms crossed and the pressure of we're going to lose this location in five minutes. So we have to get this now, yeah. you know, like you have to nail it. And then you've got smoke machines going and a gigantic camera stick stuck in your face and you're doing this scene all out of order. You know, everything about it was like these poor actors, you know, a lot of times it was just like. Uh, you know, it was a totally different scenario. So I would remember, I mean, there were some, some moments when I was just like, okay, just look at me. There's nobody else in this room, like stare into my eyes. It's going to be, and just like talking them down off ledges and trying to get these naturalistic performances. And, and, you know, I love that film and I'm really proud of it. And, uh, and it, and it worked out. And, but I was also a baby director. Like I sort of thought, oh, I was an actor, so I know how to talk to actors. Well, it turns out directing is a completely different skill set. Yeah. And when I went and finally, after shooting that film, read Judith Weston's wonderful book, Directing Actors, I just laughed my ass off because there's this sort of chapter that says, whatever you do, read this chapter and just know not to say these things and not to do these things. And I did every single one of those things. Really? It's like oh, line yeah. readings and, and I stuff? Just, and again, I made it. I mean, I knew not to do line readings, but I just like result direction, like the kinds of, you know, you don't basically want to say be, be, I think, you know, he should be angrier here. You, you don't want to give a description of what the result is. You want to try to find an active, something playable. Like you can't, like a feeling is not playable, but an actual action is playable. So there's, there's all kinds of, you know, and, and yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'll, uh, I don't know. I just, I feel like I made it a lot harder on the actors than I could have um, if I'd read that book before, for instance, or just gone, done a little bit of research into, you know, some techniques to help. Did you say you, you know, improvise a lot in, in your movies now? Yeah, not, not in that one because I had a script and I was doing it the traditional way. But yeah. I noticed what's interesting is that in that film, there was one moment in that film where I just had them played Pictionary. It was just like, I want the, you to have fun. And so... I gave them, I wrote the card, the clues that I wanted them to do, but I just had them play a game. Yeah. And it was like, it was like a light went on in the room. (laughs) There was like this energy and this ease and this realism, realism. And I remember just like sparks flying and it was like, oh my God, what if I made a whole movie that felt like that, Yeah, you know, that didn't feel like, you know, when somebody said something instead of your brain going, oh, that's a pretty well-written line. It just yeah. felt like this person was saying it, you yeah. know, in the moment for real. And that was the inspiration for how I made my next film, which was completely all the dialogue was improvised. And I developed the care because I also noticed that some people, I, I, it felt weird to me that I was right. I wrote these characters and I had a character in my head and then I had to go out and find somebody to be that character. And I thought, well, what if you did it the other way? What if you found people you wanted to work with Uh and kind of based a character on them or, or, or created a character that would fit them like a glove and, and involved them in the development of the character. So I had this very experimental upside down way of working that I wanted to try. Yeah. And that was, that was how I made my second film was I, 
I asked my friend, Sean Nelson, who I found very charismatic and compelling. And he was actually a rock musician. But as when I sat down and talked to him, it turned out he had actually had Mm -hmm. a theater background as well and had been interested in performing. And I said, would you be interested in trying this weird thing out with me and let me develop a character with you? And I had a basic, I pitched him a basic idea sort of scenario. And that was my second film called My Effortless Brilliance. And then we cast around him. I needed a, a, somebody who had good chemistry with him. And I cast one of his best friends. And they had this very funny rapport. You know, they would yeah. just like riff off of each other. And I wanted that in the film. And, and then we cast, you know, I found somebody who was the polar opposite of that friend to be this other guy, this third wheel. You know, anyway, I, I sort of, I created it in a very organic way out of he, this one guy as the starting point. Right. And then he created a char- we created a character for him that was basically him, but kind of the worst aspects of him from a few years before. You know what I mean? Like we had, and he was just so vulnerable and so willing to, you know. That sounds ideal, it. but how do you get a movie made without a script? You know, like how do you find Funding people to give wise? you money, money who well, are like, luckily, you don't the have way, a script. The, because I'd had this big crew with my first film, and I'd found that and the amount of equipment and all of the lights and all of that stuff to be so hard on the actors. Yeah. Um, the kinds of, and this is, again, I'm just, this is because there weren't at the time any actors or many actors in town who had any on camera experience, right? They were yeah. all, they were all great actors, but they were all theater actors. And it was just a new thing at the time. There wasn't, there were just weren't a lot of people in town who could do that. So, you know, obviously there are people now that I've worked with people who are used to working in front of the camera who are very technically adept at being able to shoot the scenes out of order. And they know how, obviously it's something that can be done, Mm -hmm. but when you're working with lesser, um, experienced actors in that realm, it's just, you know, I wanted to take out some of those obstructions. Yeah. So my second film was extremely cheap to make And it wasn't, I didn't build the film around the fact that I had no money. It was the opposite. I wanted to make a film where I was literally like I had the fewest number of people on set possible yeah, and the smallest, most unobtrusive cameras and no lighting equipment. And, you know, and just like shooting the whole thing in order if possible, like, like just to make it as it was all about performance. Well, it turns out making a movie in that way is unbelievably cheap. Yeah. You know, because I was using these like of course. tiny digital cameras, there was no crew to feed, you know, there were only like all told we all, and we all went to my dad's and then I looked at the resources I had at my disposal and like used them. So my yeah. dad shared this property in Easter Washington with another couple they'd bought a few years before. And so we like, there was a little cabin that was the picture house. We stayed in the house that my dad built for himself. He let us, Whoa. and there were all told, including the three actors, like eight of us sound mixer me including the actors including the actors so our our production designer would go and she figured out the set and sort of you know and but it was just set because it all took place over one long weekend and then she cooked for us so she kind (sighs) of did that and then we (laughs) and then my dp my director of photography ben was the main camera operator he'd also operated yeah and i was the other operator so we had two cameras. What kind of cameras were you using? At the time it was the, the, um, Panasonic's. Yeah. The, the DVX's. Yeah. yeah. When they were, they came out, they was very exciting cause it was 24 frames per second and yeah. they looked more cinematic. Um, and then yeah, the three 
actors sound one sound mixer oh my god it's amazing and that was and then our we had our and then nate miller was who's now a, a great cinematographer himself was um sometimes he operated the camera but, but he was also our dit guy like he would sort of figure out you know work with the drives and that was it man it was amazing what was your budget on that what'd you end up spending to make oh that? gosh probably about Fifteen thousand dollars. Oh my god, that's yeah. amazing! And I got it, and because I had this background in art, in video art, experimental art, like it was all grant money and and um, house fundraising parties that I had. Like I would pitch to people, you know, and then they would give me. I had a I had a, a fiscal sponsorship through the Northwest Film Forum, yeah. which is this local film organization. So they would be tax deductible if somebody wrote me a check for a thousand bucks were these non-union yeah yeah this is all non-union before i yeah um and so they'd write me a check for a thousand bucks and then it would be deductible for it was like it was a non-profit you know whatever tax deductible donation yeah so it was like you know giving to you know anyway it's amazing some charity or something so i was much more comfortable with that mode of fundraising than I was with the investment model. Cause I didn't know if this movie would even be a movie. It was a, it was an art project for me. Right. So then it got in my only goal with this movie was to get into South Festivals. by, I, yeah. I submitted to Sundance, but I really just thought maybe it'll get into South by, I would really like that. And it felt like the right home for it. Sure. <clears throat> and it did, it premiered there in narrative competition. And then a company wanted to buy it. And I couldn't believe it, Steve. I was like, <laughs> are you freaking kidding me? And then and it won it. the, it won the someone to watch award at the Indie Spirit Awards, which came with a cash Whoa, prize wow. of $25,000. So it was like, but I, but that money, that $15,000, I didn't have to pay anybody back. That was all tax deductible donations. There was no, there was grant money or tax deductible donations. So I didn't have to pay any investors back. Yeah. So I was already in the free and clear, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I gave little bonus checks to all the actors who had basically, everybody had just Worked done it another. sort of for free because the whole thing was shot over two long weekends. We shot it in seven days. Oh so God, it was like fucking so inspiring to hear though, when you're like, I just want to make something. You're like, well, then you have fucking make it. No excuse. Yeah, I know. You know, that's the thing. Not you personally, but people have, no, but no it's excuse. true. I mean, everyone, I mean, they, they've made movies now on iPhones. I like, know. You have, really have no Tangerine excuse. Is really incredible. But yeah. they had little, they had beautiful, they had some kind of fancy equipment, but you know, what's really interesting is I can't go back to that. I've tried. Yeah. And it's a combination of, I joined the DGA because, because of my first gig in television, which was Mad Men. I had to join in order to do that job. What was I not going to do Mad Men? You know, I know what I, right. like, obviously. Yeah, of course. Then my first movie, that was after Hump Day. So the Hump Day was my third film. It got into Sundance. And that was like why I have, I'm able to make a living is yeah. because I got representation. And then I was able to get Mad Men and I was able to start, you know, making money, yeah. basically. Um, but before that, I, again, I just always part-time taught and I thought I was always going to. And so, yeah, it definitely was a game changer to get into But because I had sold that film, because IFC Films bought that film, that second film, that I didn't even know if it was going to be a movie because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, like I was just experimenting with the whole improv thing and, you know, was it going to work? And right. um, I had the confidence that I'm going to sell this movie 
as well because I'm going to have, I just know I'm going to, I have a sexier hook. I have, I have, <laughs> you know, actors who are more experienced. I just knew I would be able to. So at that point I was able to say, okay, to the whole crew and cast, I was able to say, I'm going to give you a minimal amount of money up front, but I'm going to give you at least a point. Everybody's going to get back in. So if I make money, you're all going to make money. And I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. Like we're going to sell it for something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then it ended up, you know, selling for, for quite a bit. And the return on investment was, was really good. And the same with the film after that, your sister's sister. Did you already know Mark Duplass at this point? I had met Mark through, uh, through Joe Swanberg who had cast him in Hannah takes the stairs, which was the movie he was doing after Joe and I met. And he was like, Oh, you guys got to meet. You'd love each other. And then Mark came up to Seattle to be in another movie, Craig Johnson's first movie, um, first feature called true adolescence. Right. And I actually was in the middle of, of editing my effortless brilliance. And I was having a hard time just being in a room by myself and so I sort of said, okay, I'm going to put that off and I'm going to volunteer to be a set photographer on true adolescence so that I can meet Mark Duplass <laughs> and hang out with him. And we hit it off. And by the end of his time in Seattle, I'd said, I would love to work with you. And he was like, yeah, it sounds great. Just pitch me something, Shelton. And, you know, like two weeks later, I pitched him this idea and it developed into hump day. Did you do Hump Day the same way without a script? Yeah, I had an outline. And your sister's sister. It was sister? more. It was more. My goal with with Hump Day was that because I really, again, I like my effortless brilliance a lot as well, but it's less plot driven. It's more character portraity. It's just less kind of yeah. driving plot. Yeah. And I really wanted um, some kind of a narrative that would really like at the end of each scene, you'd be like, "What's going to happen next?" You know, that was my goal with Hump Day. And so, um, but I had, I had a, so the structure was really laid out. Right. Um, but it was, I will give Mark, uh, Duplass this genius credit for this genius move, which was he suggested that we know what was going to happen up to the hotel room. And then the hotel room would be open-ended so that throughout the film, we wouldn't have the actors sort of acting towards the end, you know, that we knew was predetermined. And I thought that was a great idea. Um, so our final 12 hours on set together, whatever it was, we checked into that hotel room at seven at night and we left at like, at like seven or eight or nine in the morning or something. Yeah. We had one hotel room for like equipment and stuff. And then the hotel room next to it was, we just shot all night in that. It was our set. Oh my God. It was crazy. And we sort of did it chunk by chunk. So we do the first sort of, sub scene the waiting for the arrival of the friend and then the arrival and then what would happen in the beginning and then it anyway but that was the most most fully improvised part of the film which is like almost it's like a quarter of the film almost a third of the film is the last part of it what year was that we made it in 2008 because it premiered in 2009 so we did it in the summer of 2008 submitted it and it got into sundance um and premiered in 2009. I think I first became aware of you because of Ellen, our friend uh-huh. Ellen Page, who did your movie Touchy Feely. Yeah. And I remember I remember how honest to God excited she was when she signed on to do it. She's like, I'm working with Lynn Shelton. 
I was like, and you're like, who the fuck is that? (laughs) And she's like, she does these movies in Seattle and she's like, and they're like very improvised and you know, you just shoot (laughs) mostly in like one place. And she was so fucking excited because I think she had just done like, I think she had just done Inception. Oh, Oh, that's possible. Like yes. 2009 or Yeah, I remember what she had when we first started talking. Which yeah. was fully just drained her, you know? That was yeah. like months of just really intense shooting. And she was just Very like, technical. She's like, I just want to go to this little house in Seattle and <laughs> for a couple weeks. And she was so excited. And um, I think she had said Catherine... Keener had gotten her or recommended her to you or something. She made her watch your sister's sister, which I showed her before it premiered. I feel like I had like an uncolor corrected copy or something. And I asked Catherine if she would watch it and she loved it. And she showed Ellen and Ellen was just freaking out about it. And that, and that kind of was how I got Ellen to say yes. I think. Did, do you, have you've worked with Jeannie, uh, a casting director of no no uh uh-uh. uh Jeannie McCarthy yeah no I've I I've only worked with Laura Rosenthal because um, I swear I've seen one of your posters in her office really I think so <laughs> that's funny because she she casts Sarah Silverman program uh huh maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe it was another. Sometimes. I don't know. I'm out of my brain. It might be. Occasionally people think I'm associated with the film that I wasn't associated with. Like I was like, I played a bit part Uh in safety, not guaranteed. And people will say, Oh, that was such a good movie. movie. And I'm like, yeah, no, I had nothing to do with that movie. I got to, it was shot with my crew. Well, Mark Duplass was one of the producers on it. And so he brought them up to Seattle and it was like basically my crew, like it was shot by my DP, Ben Kasulki and had a lot of the same people on the crew. And then it was Colin Trevorrow who went on to do Jurassic world. Oh my God. That movie was great. Yeah. It was so great. Right. I was I went into it not knowing, I went to see it with Ellen and I went into it not knowing a thing about it. Mm -hmm. She's like, you want to go see Safety Not Guaranteed? I go, I don't know what that is. Best way to see a movie. Best. Any movie. I've stopped looking at trailers. Oh yeah. I think it's the best way to go into a movie is knowing Reviews and trailers. I totally agree. I love going in without knowing anything. And I, you always end up hearing something through osmosis, but if it's possible, it's one of the reasons the festivals are so fun. Is you just, you, there's, there's a no list of movies yet. and you just go, you know, and maybe you hear word of mouth. Like somebody just says, this is, you know, maybe points you to the direction of it. But I love just having no idea. Occasionally I'll still have this experience where I'll go and I'll see something and I'll be like, what are we seeing? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. I can't even. <laughs> who's in this one again? Who's in this one? And then it just, you know, I would love to somehow you. just make a movie or make a career doing independent movies and just going to, um, festivals. (laughs) I did that for the first couple, three movies and it, it I've never been to a festival. Really, Steve? Oh, no, I went to TIFF. Oh, that's so crazy. I went to Toronto International Film Festival with Ellen because we were both in a movie called Super that James Gunn directed with her and Rain Wilson. And that was, and I had the smallest part. I had like two lines. Yeah. 
but I had I was already in Canada visiting Ellen in Halifax. We were like just camping and stuff. Hmm. And uh, and so I just went from Halifax to Toronto mm-hmm. to watch like the midnight screening of Super. That's fun. And uh, but it's 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 really different. Oh, yeah. yeah. To do like I mean, the best experience festival wise for me and again, it's something I feel like I'll never really experience again, probably yeah. in the same way. But was being a new director, it was all kind of a new world. Yeah. And being really like my very, very first festival was Slamdance, which was the perfect place. There were they yeah. only took first and second time director directed films, I believe was is their thing. And Slamdance is in Sundance. It's right? in it's yeah. at Park City. Yeah. In the same city as Sundance at the same time. Yeah. And it's like, and they get overflow from people who can't get into Sundance films will go see, you know, and, but there'll also people be people who go, yeah. but they've started a lot of people's careers. And, um, like the guy who did 500 days is summer, Mark Webb and a, a bunch of other many yeah. movies anyway. Um, and they, uh, but there were like 10 or 12 films total in the, in my category of narrative, you know, dramatic feature. And I, every day, I remember there was a happy hour. I was basically kind of a little soused for nine days straight, <laughs> as I recall. Um, yeah. And although the altitude kind of makes you feel that way anyway. And you would just hang out with other directors, with the programmers. Yeah. They made you feel like royalty, like like really yeah. well taken care of. And and you and just, you're with your cast again too. And you're with your cast and your whole crew. My whole crew is there, and it was just so lovely and really well. Not the whole crew, but a lot of them. And it was so. Um, it's like you you immediately bond with other filmmakers because my friends and family who weren't in that world yeah. had no idea what I had just been through. It's like a war, you know. It's like you go. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to minimize war but it, it it really is like you've been in some kind of battle together you know you yeah, really yeah. create this it's your vietnam and you're yeah oh god and then you and then you meet other filmmakers and it's like you see directly in each other's eyes it's like you know where i've been and i know where you've been and you immediately bond you know right. and then if you see each other's films and there's any kind of aesthetic spark between like yes you know we're kindred spirits or someone yeah. you know you make i have friends that i i just hung out the other night with one of the programmers um, Kent Osborne, who's worked oh, yeah, with yeah. Swanberg a bunch and made this great film, Uncle Kent, Uncle and Kent Uncle too. Kent Two, which I just hosted the, the Q and A so for. Great for that, yeah. And the director of Uncle Kent Two is Todd Rohall, whose very first feature film also premiered at that same Slam Dance with with my first feature yeah. film. So we've been friends since then, and you forge these bonds with people. You know, that's really it. Or it's just it's a wonderful experience. And so that film went to Maryland Film Festival, the Sidewalk Film Festival in Birmingham, Alabama, and um, uh, a few other, you know, and then local films. That we, I think I took. Well, did no, it didn't go to my second film went to the Ashland Film Festival. I went to Bend. I went I to didn't all these different films. I didn't even know there was films. an Ashland Film Festival. Oh, it's and wonderful. And I lived in Ashland. Oh, it's wonderful. I think it started after you left probably, but it's a great, great film festival. And they, all yeah. of these smaller festivals that really are all about the audience and the artists 
and they give you and they you know you get yeah. tours of the city and cool like handmade statuettes and you <laughs> you just get these really yeah. great local experiences yeah. and you're really treated like royalty and yeah. then you get to really bond and hang out with these other filmmakers and it's just wonderful it's really and that was when I first started getting like I think I had you know my MySpace page or whatever because I was taught by these youngsters you know Oh, this is what you do. And then you can tag people in the photographs that you took together. And it's like social media kind of keeps you. I loved social media, both that and Facebook when it first came out, because it was like you felt really connected, continue to feel connected to these people that you met, you know, and I, and European festivals, you know, I've, I still am. I just had lunch a couple months ago with a guy I met at the He Home Film Festival in Spain. He Home? Yeah. It's spelled G-I-J-O-N, but the. There's different ways to pronounce it, but Gijón is my favorite. In the upper, like, northern coast of Spain, I had this amazing experience with Hump Day. And they gave me Best Director and Best... And it also got Best uh, Acting, I think, Ensemble, maybe, or something. The two guys got awards, and it was the most... Do you get flown out for those? Oh, yeah, I would If you get a movie in, like, Sundance or Gijón... Sundance, they might give you a little bit of a stipend, but it's pretty much most festivals you have to fly yourself. But like another great one was the what's it called? Oh, I'm embarrassed. It's in Krakow. (laughs) Amazing experience taking my effortless brilliance to Krakow. And they flew me out there. And I mean, it was, and some of these festivals, I never got one of these big cash awards, but I know people who lived on the cash awards that they got at various festivals. You know, some of the festivals make big, have big top prizes, you know? And so anyway, it's, it's really, um, it is something some people do is they just go to festivals all the time and then they feed you and they, you know, but, um, it's, but it really is, it can be a really wonderful kind of bonding and aesthetically, you know, creatively inspiring experience. Um, Don't you wish you could just do independent movies for forever? <laughs> well, it's the other I've thing is I got spoiled too. Roughest times, but afterwards you feel like oh, that was on. Like that one that I did yeah. out in the desert, which was so difficult and like. The other thing though movie. about being a director in in that world, and I've talked about this a lot with other friends of mine who you you're asking a lot of people to have faith in you who are working with you, actors, crew, and, and hopefully you're all on the same kind of level where you're all, you know, you're, you're asking people to do a favor or, or to work for less than they usually would or whatever. And I even then tried to really treat them right. Make sure they're fed correctly and correctly really well. You want to, no matter what, I'm just going to say this right now. If you, you know, ask people to work for, very little money or no money, make sure you feed them well. It's yeah. very important. If yeah. you want happiness on the set, which you do, that's what you got to do. Um, so even if all your money goes in the food budget, like make sure that it's and warm food, not like salads on a hot, you know, incredibly cold winter day. One of day. my biggest pet peeves Jeez. is doing those kind of independent shoots and they're like, hey, we went to Subway and yeah. we got a bunch of sandwiches and I'm looking at them going, there's mayo on all of these. I hate mayo. Yeah. There's pickles on all of yeah. these. And then I'll just eat chips. Oh, it's horrible. I'm like, I can't. I, no, no, it's not. Worst. You've got to make sure people are really happy and well fed. So anyway, that's very important no matter what, no matter if you have no money at all. But, um, but here's what I find to be really important is you can't, 
continue to do that. Right. And, and I feel, you know, I, again, because of the back end points that people got, and even if it took a while sometimes, and that's frustrating for some people too, like, oh, this whole point thing. Well, if you add up the amount of money that you got paid out, it was actually, you know, it was a pretty damn good day rate, right? Yeah. But it took, oh, yeah. it might've taken two take, years for you while, to get yeah. that. You know, you're getting all of these little checks or sometimes bigger checks, but still, you know, it takes a while, but at least the money is there and at least, you know, it happened. I want to ask you after you finish this thought about the point system, because I, I really sure. don't understand how it works. Sure, sure. Um, but that all that being said, you still, the you know, you're, you're often asking people, like you're saying the, the no trailers thing or whatever, you know, there's, you're asking them to work under conditions that are not optimal often and that kind of thing. So anyway, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I have always made it a goal that each film, or at least when I start getting to a certain point, you, you just, you want to start being able to pay those people back, but in general, right. you want to be able to, because you don't want it to get into an abusive or exploitative situation where people are feeling used and they're feeling, you know, it's, it's better. Um, which is one of the main reasons why I can't go back. I can't do my effortless brilliance ever again, because now I have enough films under my belt that I just wouldn't feel right doing that, you know? And I also (laughs) have more, I, my standards are higher. Like if you look at the way that hump day and my effortless brilliance look, some of it is quite beautiful, but some of the some of the scenes are just like, they just don't have enough lighting. You know, they really don't. Or the camera just, I wish I could have had a better camera, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm spoiled too. You know, I want my films to feel good, feel naturalistic, feel real. And, but I also want them to look good, you know, and that kind of thing, you know, that's the thing. Yeah. I've done some movies where it's like (laughs) you're shooting them and it is the best time and the script is funny and you're like oh my god this feels great i think we're doing something great and then you see it and, and it looks like the budget that it was given right and you're like ah oh, fuck yeah and sometimes i mean you will f- i'm i've been blown away by some of the films i've seen with low budgets that it micro budgets were because especially now now the level of the quality of um of camera is oh my god crazy Did you see Blue Ruin? yeah Oh my God. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Beautiful. Unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. And you think about how And that was a crowdsourced movie too. So you want to know about points? Yeah. I've always, because I hear about people who are like, oh, I worked on this movie and they didn't have a lot of money. I had to work for scale, but they said they would give me back end points. Right. Which I have no idea. I know it means... Well, if a point it makes is, a certain amount of money, you get money. I don't yeah. understand how points work. Well, it depends on what the distribution deal is and what the, but usually it's, the, it's, so there's net, you know what net and gross means, uh-huh. right? So <laughs> I was unbelievably lucky because a couple of my films were basically, we had, um, we had, we had deals that were were gross basically because what can happen is a distributor can say, well, you, you know, we'll give you a percentage of the profits after we've had all the money we've been paid back for all of the, all of the promotion we've had to put into it, all the money we've put in to, you know, press and promotion or whatever. And, um, 
And then that means you'll, you won't get anything because they can keep kind of saying, oh, but there was this and there was this and there was this yep. and we had to, sorry, you know, yep, there was I've no, some of those. so, so, um, usually in those situations, if you as an actor or you as a crew member have any kind of back end points, they'll usually come out of the advance, you know, if there's any kind of advance, it's like, okay, here's a big chunk of money. It's going to go, and and usually the way it goes is that the the first people to get paid are the investors. Yep. So, and they'll get the average, I believe, is 20% above that as well. So they get okay. like a 20% interest, you know. After they're paid off, if there's money left over, it gets divided among the people who have points. And the points, one point just means one percentage, basically. Right. So, um, so that's usually how it works. And then, but it, you know, it'll look different depending on the different deals with the distributor, you know? So I've actually had experiences where we got a gross point corridor, which means those, it was whatever money <laughs> came in would immediately get divided up and you wouldn't have to wait until well, that's the good. promotion would have been paid off. I will never see that kind of a deal again, I'm sure, you know, but, um, because I don't even know how we got away with it the first time, but <laughs> Because I know twice, people, I yeah, that have worked on like big budget studio movies who are like who don't see anything. No, no, who've like oh, I worked for scale, uh huh, and then the movie came out, uh huh, and made like two hundred million dollars, uh-huh. and I made more money than I've ever made in my life because of the half just a point because I of had. my percentage point. Absolutely. That I had. So the potential is there for sure. You know, it depends on how much money the movie makes. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're doing an independent movie and you get points, you're not going to make Probably not, unless... And even if you do make money, it's not going to be a lot. Because probably probably not. Yeah. I mean, with, with Hump Day and Your Sister, Sister, both, everybody made um, a really decent amount of money. And I personally lived on that money for a long time. Like I was living on the fumes of those, of my profits from those films. Um, the only person who probably didn't make like more than they would usually make was Emily Blunt (laughs) because her quote was higher, you know, but, but the actors and the, you know, everybody else, I think made made pretty good. Your sister's sister. We was shot she it already right after Mad Emily Men. Blunt she had just Emily. done like, you know, I remember her saying that that she had to like sneak out of her house the back way because oh, people wow. had started to wait outside of her of her door after it she just done Wolfman. Is that what it was? The one with Benicio del Toro? Oh, maybe. I don't know. That was her first kind of big studio thing. She's she's also married to it was after John young Victoria. Right? Yeah, she got married like right before, like a year before last then yeah. she about to marry him something. I can't remember. But anyway, it was right around the time she was getting married to him um, when she did your sister, sister. So we shot it in the fall of 2010 and then it premiered at TIFF 2011. Right. She's great. Yeah. Rosemary DeWitt was really good too. Mark two plus was good. <laughs> I like that movie. I, I, I worked with, well, sort of worked with Mark on the league. Oh, you did. I don't think I had any scenes with him, but he was uh-huh. around. He's very nice. I worked with his wife. Oh, you've worked with Katie? Uh-huh. Oh, oh, you mean on that show? On the league, yeah. I got to work with her finally. I've never directed her, um, but finally I did because um, she was on Casual. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she was Michaela Watkins' character's new friend, and I got to work with her, which was really fun. She's great. She did she a movie so with Lake Bell in Seattle or like Washington, right? 
No, they shot that in like New York in like upstate New York. Were they on that island? Yeah. That wasn't Black Rock or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't Seattle. No. I thought that was like it was like all Maine. those islands in the Puget Sound. I thought it was one no, of those. No, because they had a like a summer house or a family summer house or something up. And I think that's where they shot it near. I, I'm just totally talking about it. But I know it was the East Coast. It wasn't It wasn't Seattle. There was some crew, I think, that they used. But anyway. Yeah. I have a friend that goes camping in those islands. Like there's a bunch my, of islands, islands in. Yeah. Like in the yeah. Washington area. That, oh, like, so many great islands. Well, we shot um, your sister's sister on one of them. <sighs> I'm not supposed to say which one, but it's one of the San Juan Islands. There's there's like. Gosh, I want to say six San Juan Islands. Yeah. Lopez, San Juan, Orcas, and then some smaller ones. And it, it's it's just gorgeous. And yeah. then there's other in Puget Sound. Those are in Puget Sound. And then there's also Vashon Island is is the most southern one. Um, used to be like the strawberry capital of the world, like a very, very rural. There are still wow. a lot of farms. Um, Bainbridge Island has a lot of... is probably the closest to Seattle. I want to say there's also, yeah. And it's, uh, Woodby Island is another fantastic. It's the longest Island after, um, Long Island, which isn't really an Island. So would be, I think it's, yeah, it's pronounced would be, but it's, it's spelled W H I D B E Y after captain would be <laughs> an explorer. All right. But um, a lot of beautiful islands and uh, the ferry ride, just getting on a ferry is great. Yeah. You know, it's so pretty. The scenery around there is just One of crazy. the only times I've ever ridden on a ferry other than like the Staten Island ferry is. <laughs> Which doesn't count. Uh, going from Washington to like Victoria Island. Oh, nice. I think we took a ferry. Well, it's Vancouver Island. Vancouver. Victoria is a city on the bottom of it. Wherever that, I, all, I was a kid and I was with my family. We were on vacation. That is a gorgeous, north. gorgeous part of the world. And we went to Victoria. Yeah, there's a city of Vancouver. Where's the, the flower garden, the big, Bo- the, uh, what's it called? Bouchard the, Gardens. Y- yeah, Bouchard like? Gardens. That's it. Yeah. 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 In fact, the last time we went to that area of the world, we went, finally went to Bouchard Gardens because I'd never been there. I remember seeing big billboards as a kid and we finally went me and my husband and my kid. Yeah. Um, it was after laggies. It was three years ago. And I did what you're supposed to do for the first time. I'd never done it before, but you know, a director is supposed to finish the shoot and then go away for yeah. a week, you know, or two weeks or something and go yeah. to Hawaii or whatever. Yeah. And so I organized a trip for us to take a ferry up and, and then, uh, drive up to Vancouver, up Vancouver Island and yeah. to a couple of spots, went to a hot Springs. There's a place called hot Springs. I think it's called hot Springs or something hot springs cove something like that beautiful amazing it was like three different levels of hot hot springs yeah. at different temperatures the cooler the closer you got down to the ocean until it was just like wash splashing up anyway it was amazing gorgeous um area of the world yeah, yeah i want to shoot beautiful. something up there yeah i can't believe i've never been to vancouver i, I know so much never stuff shot gets shot up there, there. Yeah, which is another problem Washington State has is it's got Vancouver right there. Right. Enticingly. But there's so many movies. It's like a personal point of a sore point for for Seattleites, especially people in the yeah. film industry is all the films that have been like 50 is a great example of so many, though, um, that are set in Seattle, but shot in Vancouver. God it's really it. depressing. Do you have to be somewhere at two? 
Uh, no, I originally was supposed to be. Is it already two? Oh, Jesus. It's like almost. You're going to edit this down, right? I don't know. To the key, to the, to the really An hour interesting and a half. That's parts. Good. <laughs> Are we done? I think we can be done. Okay. Um, do you have, have anything pee. you want to plug? Do you have anything coming up? What have you been shooting lately? Casual. This year, you can see all the stuff I've worked on. I'm really proud of everything I've worked on. So I'll start back with Shameless. So I worked on Shameless yep. last year, and it was in last seasons, which I think was season six. And it was, it, I can't remember what it was called now. It was called, anyway, it was one of the last episodes of the, I think it was third to last episode of the, of the season. Um, and then I worked on, and then I directed the first two episodes of the last final season of Marin, which Mm -hmm. I'm very proud of being a part of that was acted in Marin and I acted in, in like the, yeah, (laughs) one called geographic, which is like near the end, second to last or third to last. Yeah. Oh my God. And, uh, and then I worked on Casual season two, episode seven and eight. Very, very proud of those episodes. Yeah. Loved, loved, loved working with that whole cast. Michaela Watkins is a goddess. Oh, she's the best. Tommy and Tara are also incredible. Everybody was great on that show. Um, and the writing was great. Oh, just had such a good time. I was in a movie with Tara. Oh, were, were you? Bobcat's movie. Bobcat's movie. Oh, you were I in that in too. I was in a very... Quick. I'm the king of... <laughs> saying one line in a movie right. and people a year later, I get a lot of tweets going, did I just see Steve Agee and God bless America get shot right. in the face? Oh God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tara's lovely. And, uh, and then I worked on love season two of the Netflix show love. I can't wait to see that. And that show was super duper fun. And it, that's frustrating because I was really proud to work on that show and really excited. And, it's not coming out until like February next year and it's such a drag, yeah. but they wanted, I guess Netflix likes, because they now have this international, huge international release. Oh, well. you have to turn stuff in really early so that they can kind of get it all ready for right. all the different dubbing and subtitling oh, okay. and I think is why. So anyway, that won't come out for a while. And then I worked on Mike Schur's new show. He's, he's the creator of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec. Mike Schur is also Moe's in uh, The Office. Is he? He plays Dwight Schrute's Really? Brother? Is it I his brother, not... Moe's? Oh my God, I didn't realize that was he's him. He's got that's the, so... the Amish beard. Yes. And he's, oh my I don't God, think that's hysterical. It's before I think I met him, so I didn't know that was him. Oh, that's There's so funny. There's an episode where John Krasinski goes to... Shroot Farms uh, with um, Pam. Uh-huh. Because I think they're looking... I don't know why they're going there. They're looking for a place to maybe have their wedding or something. Uh-huh. And they're driving onto the property <laughs> and they look to the right as they're driving and Mike sure is just running alongside the car. Just this weird looking They're Amish have guy. To find that like again. a dog. He's like so a dog running next to funny. the car. Oh my God. I love Mike Sure so much. And yeah. I worked with his wife, JJ Philbin, on New Girl twice. I had the she's a writer. Oh. Yeah, my I very first episode, Injured, was written by her, and then she co wrote an episode um that I did later. And she's just a great writer, wonderful writer, awesome. and a wonderful human. And, um, yeah, and I love Mike. Mike was the one who got me hired on Aziz Ansari's Master of None well, show. There you go, yeah. 
So, um, yeah. And he's just great anyway. So I, I worked on his show, the good place with Ted Danson, Kristen Bell. And then I worked on a Netflix show that I don't know if I haven't seen any press about it. So I'm not going to say what that was, but it's a, it was a really (laughs) fun, funny show. And right now I'm back in LA so that I can do an episode of fresh off the boat, which I directed the pilot of Mm -hmm. two, three years ago and have directed like seven episodes of, and I really funny show it's doing love well it. too yeah i love notch um nanach kakan who's the creator yeah showrunner amazing human being amazing woman so smart so yeah. funny and she's got such a great staff and that whole cast yes, and, I, I go mean, it's way just, back with randall park yeah oh randall oh my god and constance is in fact, a genius the movie i was telling you about earlier the horror movie i was in oh, where was we're out it? in the desert randall and i this. play brothers oh my god <laughs> It's is this called, out in the world? What's it called? I think the final title they went with is Undead Amigo. <laughs> but for a long time, the title was The Many Lives of Jovan Cornejo. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a horror movie. He plays my adoptive uh, adopted brother. And uh, yeah, How we, long ago did you shoot this? It's like five or six years ago. Oh, my God. But I know him going back even farther than that. Yeah. I, I remember I got to... I'd already directed him on Fresh Off the Boat and then I got to direct him in a scene on the Mindy Project because he was like their their optometrist yeah. friend. Yeah. yeah, it's so fun how those, how, you well, know. I think and now that he's in tight with that Seth Rogen crew. Right. He's, he's, he's got in a lot made. of stuff with them. <laughs> this has been the year I feel, I feel like, because here's the thing as a guest director on TV shows, you come in, you drop into a, 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 a sort of a family. It might be dysfunctional family. They're always to some extent dysfunctional, but you know, um, the crew has been working together. Everybody's been working together so tightly and you have to sort of endear yourself somehow. You have to somehow infiltrate this tight yeah. group and get them to trust you a little yeah. bit. And you like, let's collaborate. And, um, but you all, I always end up bonding with at least some of the people, if not, you know, the majority of them. And then, um, and I'm, and then you're yanked out and it's like, Oh, I'll never see them again. So the thing that's, that's nice weird, about yeah. a show like fresh off the boat, or I did five episodes of new girl too. And it was like, nice to, you know, you go back in and you get to see people again, but yeah. sometimes you feel like, like mad men. I knew that was a one shot thing. Cause I knew I was the guest director that year and that it wasn't something they would likely repeat. And I really felt so bonded to all those people. And that was back in 2010. And I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see any of you ever again. And this is the year that I've started to see, I'll show up on a set and there will be a bunch of people that I've worked with before on other shows, crew and cast. So this was the year, for instance, that two times in a row on casual I worked with um, Vincent Kartheiser, who was Pete. Yeah. And and then I rich would I worked with Rich Summer. I love Rich. Um, on on the love, he was in it. So it was really fun, you know, like that. So that's happened now with actors, but um, but yeah, crew all the time. So I start to feel like, oh, this actually is. It's such a big world, a big industry, but actually there are smaller, there is a smaller community. Like you actually do yeah. start to see the same people again. And it was, it's really nice. It's so nice to, to, you know, revisit. I've guest starred on a lot of shows where walking in. I'm so nervous because I'm mm-hmm. like, well, this show's been going for forever. I feel like the kid, you have a similar, the, the first day at a new school. Yes. Yes. And I'm a senior yeah. and it's my first day there. So all the seniors have been there for four years yes. together. It's a good way and you're of just describing like, it. Yeah. Oh fuck. Where am I going to sit at when we break Who's for lunch? Who's going to be nice to me? Who do I sit with? Exactly. 
It's, it is. And it's so funny how you have that same level of social anxiety, even as an adult. I mean, it's hopefully not the exact same level. Hopefully it's a little bit better, but there's still that vulnerability that you experience. I find there's a vulnerability to going up and smiling and introducing yourself to people (laughs) and just hoping they don't just like, (laughs) you know, brush you off. And then it's always such a relief when they like smile back and say their name. And then you hope to God you can remember it because you're learning 75 names that day. Than a fun group of people, the fun cast and crew. Listen, man, it's so hard to do this work. Yeah. If you're not going to have a good time doing it, just go do something else. You know, I, I just refuse to work on a show that's not fun to work on, you know, where people aren't happy. There's a, what's the famous, um, sitcom director Burroughs James Burroughs is that maybe he was like a writer on on taxi oh okay he he I think he was a co-creator of Cheers a a director on Cheers Uh uh-huh he I think directed the pilot and a lot of episodes of Friends Mm -hmm, he's like mm -hmm. the top right sitcom director and he is like the only person I think. And when I was working on, I've done a couple episodes of Two Broke Girls. And the first time I worked on the show, they were talking one day about him. And they're like, do you know, everyone was like, do you know he has a clause in his contract that they called the, no fun, the fun clause? Uh-huh. Where if he's on a set and it's, stressful or not stressful, but, but people are being assholes or unenjoyable. He can just fucking leave. (laughs) They can be halfway through a shoot. (laughs) This is, and it's true by the way. That is so cool. Like he does a lot of multi-cam, so it's a week of rehearsals and then one shoot night, but wow, they could be on the night of the shoot. And if someone's a dick to him, he can just be like, see you later. And just walk off and not be held accountable. Has he ever done it? Once. Do you know what the show was? That is awesome. I don't know what the show was. Oh my God. I'll try and find out. Try and find out for me. That Um, is amazing. Yeah, I heard he's used used it only once. Oh God, I love that so much. Everybody has to mind their fun time P's and Q's. Everyone be really nice to him. So what's his name? James Burroughs? That sounds like a very, that feels like a, uh, like a, 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 what am I trying to say? A A name I've seen on the screen in a particular like taxi era font. So I, I think that that could very well be true. Um, My phone is over across the room, so I can't look it up. (laughs) I think that's his name anyway. All right. Uh, so people can find you. You're on all the social networking sites. Yeah. I'm a Lynch. Is it Lynch Sheldon or Lynch Sheldon film? Somebody took my Twitter handle, though, um, for Instagram. So I was on Twitter first at Lynn Shelton Film. I tried to go to Instagram to create Lynn Shelton Film, but there was already a Lynn Shelton Film. What the And hell? somebody had creepily, like, taken pictures from me off the web and put it on there. I don't know who Did they are. Did you get that shut down? I don't know why. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to. You just click. You go onto their profile. Yeah. And there's the three little, like, the ellipses. And you yeah. click it, and it'll say report. And I say, I'm not this person. And it'll say. It's got my picture, but it's not me. And I think there's an option where you can click that they are impersonating someone. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks for the tip. So on Instagram, I am 
The Lynn Shelton. <laughs> Are they linked though? Like if you post something on Instagram yeah. and you say share on Twitter. For me, it, yes. It'll still share. Yes. But if I tagged you in a photo on Instagram and shared it on Twitter, it would still show up. It would. No, I guess not. I don't know. I, I think mean, it, it does. I think if you have your things connected. Then oh, okay. Maybe so then. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'll I'm, look into the whole I'm middle-aged. I don't know how social networking. Who did that to so me. the Lynn Shelton on Instagram. Because it's not nefarious. It's not like they're being mean or anything. It's just weird. It is weird. But anyway. The Lynn Shelton on Instagram and Lynn Shelton film or uh-huh. films? No, just Lynn Shelton film on, uh, on Twitter. And, and what's then, your Snapchat? I don't have a Snapchat. That's the end. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> That's the worst. No more. <laughs> um... Um, yeah, I'm there. I don't have, I have, there's a website that somebody created for me, like back when I had one, you know, like I had two movies out or something. And I think it's still out there. It's like horribly, un, you know, like out of date, but, um, really? yeah, so ignore that. <laughs> What's that website? It's like lynnshelton.net or something. Oh my God. I got to find it. <laughs> um, all right. So, okay. Um, that was super fun. Everybody, that, this is Lynn Shelton and, um, and all, all my movies. So you can see my movies. It's some, so nice. It's in perpetuity in perpetuity. There's two of them are on Netflix, your sister, sister and touchy feely. Yep. And then hump day used to be, and then it went, came down, which is very sad. Laggies is the last movie I made and you can get it on Amazon prime. If you are an Amazon prime and member, I, you can iTunes. see it for free and iTunes and with Kira Knightley. Yes, Sam, Kira Knightley, Sam, freaking awesome Rockwell. Ugh, I want to work with Grace him Moretz, so Caitlin Deaver. Oh my God. He's amazing. Is Jeff Garland in it? Jeff Garland's in it. Ellie Kemper's in it. Oh my God. Yeah. It's amazing such cast. a good cast. Um, Mark Weber is incredible. Oh my God. And uh, and then and then the other films I've made, like uh, Hump Day and and My Fruitless Brilliance are both available on Amazon and iTunes. And then We Go Way Back is, I believe, available <laughs> still on this great website that people should know about called Fandor. And I think Fandor? You can, F-A-N-D-O-R? Like, F-A-N-D-O-R, Fandor, yeah. And it's like a um, really cool independent foreign Criterion Collection style, you know, what? place to see really, really cool movies. They have a great, great lineup of films. And I think you can even, if you want to see my movie for free, I think you can subscribe to it for, for a, a, f- a trial. Yeah, I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure you can. Fandor, that but sounds it's, great. But it's worth, I, I don't think it's a lot of money per month. And it's like really, if people are really interested in cinema, it's pretty, pretty damn cool. And then eventually it should, I'm hoping you can buy it on iTunes, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen. If anybody's interested in the deep, the deep cuts of Lynn Shelton, we go way back. Um, But anyway, thanks for having me. And you should put all your uh, art school stuff up on Vimeo. Yes. At some point I will definitely do that. Um, All right. I think we did it. Okay. Uh, Thanks for doing this, Lynn. Thanks for having me, Steve. And thanks for listening, listeners. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Bye. Feral Audio.